Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, sharing isn't always caring. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg says his new goal is to build AI that is as smart as humans and then release it responsibly, he says, as an open source system. Gambling with his death. An Alabama man faces execution for the second time. After a lethal injection attempt failed, he returns to the death chamber to face a new and untested method of execution. States of unease after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu repeats his opposition to a two-state solution, a former Israeli justice minister and peace negotiator tells us why he still believes it is the only solution. Watershed moment. A coalition of First Nations in northern Manitoba is celebrating after signing a deal with the government to protect 50,000 square kilometers of land. Better never than late. Two Madonna fans are suing the artist after Madge made them wait two hours before starting her show. And sleeping with the fishes. South Tampa, Florida is beset by a strange, low, rumbling sound. And residents suspect it's the sound of fish hooking up. To use a term fish really don't like. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that suspects there's some finny business going on. Mark Zuckerberg says he plans to one day make a powerful artificial intelligence system and give it to the public for free. The CEO of Meta made the comments in an exclusive interview with The Verge. He told the technology publication that his new goal is to create artificial general intelligence, technology that is as smart or smarter than humans. And he wants to make it open source. That's raising a lot of alarm bells. Dame Wendy Hall is a professor of computer science at the University of Southampton and a member of the UN's advisory body on AI. She's in Southampton, England. Professor Hall, what flashed through your mind as you read Mark Zuckerberg's latest comments? I was really quite shocked, actually. Um, you know, they're all talking about it. They've all been in Davos this week talking about AI. Sam Altman's been out there and, you know, they're all vying to be top dog. And it's, um, you know, the fact that he's saying we're going we're gonna to go for AGI, which I'm sure your listeners are aware is advanced general intelligence, which is the name given to something that would be as intelligent or more intelligent than us. And there's a huge philosophical debate about whether we can reach that or not. But if we can, then this is exactly the stuff that they're scaremongering about in terms of the existential threat. And he's saying, oh, well, we're going to go full out for AGI and we're going to make it open source. That's so irresponsible. I mean, it's just so irresponsible to to. It's a bit. You know, it's like giving someone. I've said it before. A template for to build a nuclear bomb or something. I mean, it's a. You know, you're going to give the bad guys all this stuff and let them do what the hell they want with it. I mean, you know, this is exactly. You can tell by the anger in my voice. Yes. What we've been trying to do is calm all this down and say we need to regulate this stuff for sure. To release something that you would say is AGI before anything's been tested, evaluated, checked by whatever bodies we're going to set up to check these systems, it's a bit like letting a plane fly without anyone testing whether it can fly or not, you know? It's it's that irresponsible. Zuckerberg said an AGI system should be made, quote, as widely available as we responsibly can. End quote. Yeah, he used the word. He used the word responsibly. I did see that. Yeah. Yes, but but it sounds um, like you don't put have, a lot of weight in it. Well, <laughs> you see, the thing is, the companies and I, you know, they're all out for. They got to make money for their shareholders. They're they're in competition with each other. 
So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I, I you paint you paint quite a vivid picture of a group of, of very rich people with big ambitions uh, and and this sort of arms race, a different kind of arms yeah. race, uh, sitting around mm, and, and making is. huge decisions. Yeah, and, and, and the governments and the big companies have got to work together to make sure we do regulate this stuff and make it safe. I think we've, there's many years before anyone will develop anything that is more intelligent than the, than the human, you know, collective human race. But, but um, for sure, you know, AI is going to get cleverer and cleverer. Um, human beings are quite easy to fool. And um, <laughs> we have got to regulate this industry. Last year, we spoke with Jeffrey Hinton, uh, who, of course, is, oh, yeah. is often referred to as the yeah. godfather of AI. He he was very concerned uh, at that point. And I'll put to yeah. you what we put to him at that time. Uh, and it was a quote from Jan LeCun, the chief of AI at Meta, who has said, quote, yeah. I believe intelligent machines will usher in a new renaissance for humanity, a new era of enlightenment. And he disagrees with the idea that machines will dominate humans simply because they uh, are smarter, let alone destroy humans, he goes on to say. So are, is, are you concerned at all that, that we might be missing out on a great opportunity by putting limits on the development of AGI? You could use the analogy of, of uh, uh, to a certain extent, of, of how we deal with planes flying, you know, aircraft, because we have not stopped innovation in that industry. But you know, it's uh, despite the problems Boeing have had in the last few months, years with their new plane. Um, generally speaking, it's become an incredibly safe industry, and planes don't often fall out of the sky. They're he- quite heavily regulated, but not, but in a, but in a way that still allows them to be innovative and in in both business sense and what they're doing in terms of the future of flying. And I think that's what we've got to do with AI. But it. Um, you know, <laughs> I think we have, I think, and I do think we have the time to put those systems in place. It's very interesting that you bring in Hinton and Jan LeCun because they're diametrically opposed to each other now, although they work together for a long time in their belief in terms of what might happen. Yeah. And he's working, I mean, clearly LeCun's working, he's with Meta. So he's on, so Meta are picking up on his ideas, which is you should open source everything. It's one of the, the UN is going to do a big deep dive into this whole issue of open source, because that's one of the big controversies at the moment, how much you open source these um, these generative AI systems, yeah. Well, we should definitely keep in touch to talk to you. At the outset of our conversation, you, you said one of the things that upsets you is as you're trying to assuage people and calm any fears that the broader public might have, see folks like Zuckerberg make these kinds of comments. What would you say to assuage our listeners now about where this technology is going? Because if you're scared, how should they not be scared? (laughs) I'm scared when someone like Mark Zuckerberg says something quite so irresponsible. I don't, that doesn't mean I think he's going to achieve it anytime soon. But um, thankfully, I think it's still a long way away before we're going to achieve AGI in any meaningful sense. Uh, That's, that's, I'm not worried. I don't, you know, in terms of uh, the existential threat in my lifetime. <laughs> but then I am 72, so <laughs> <laughs> my lifetime might not. But we have got to get it right for the people, you know, the youngsters. We have got to get it right for the future. We we, we can see what – the thing is, there's this stuff. The opportunities are fantastic, but we can see the potential threats. And so we are, for the you know, for the generations to come, it is our responsibility, just as it is with the climate, to make sure that they're going to grow into a world where, which is safe to use AI. Wendy Hall, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, pleasure. Dame Wendy Hall is a member of the UN's advisory body on AI. She was in Southampton. Benjamin Netanyahu says there will be no two-state solution in Israel. It's not the first time the Israeli prime minister has said he opposes the idea of Palestinian statehood, but his comments yesterday brought new clarity. And with Israeli forces advancing further into southern Gaza and intense bombardment throughout the densely packed city of Khan Yunis, they came in a deadly context. 
In any arrangement, whether there is an accord or not, the Israeli state must have security control over all the territory west of the Jordan River. It's a necessary condition. But that clashes with the principle of Palestinian sovereignty. So what can I say? I've told our American friends this truth. I've also stopped the attempt to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security. An Israeli Prime Minister should be able to say no, even to our best friends. In the wake of Mr. Netanyahu's remarks, Israeli allies, including Canada, have expressed disapproval. Palestinian officials have expressed dismay, and many Israelis, including our next guest, have expressed disappointment. Yossi Balin is Israel's former Minister of Justice and was a negotiator during the Oslo Peace Accords. He was our guest just four days after the Hamas attacks of October 7th, and we reached him again in Tel Aviv today. Yossi Balin, is the idea of a two-state solution dead? Oh, no, it is the only idea that can save Israel. I mean, as a Jewish and democratic state, of course. And uh, so it is not dead. It is, uh, I don't understand why Netanyahu had uh, to say it. Uh, but uh, it means that that Netanyahu's uh, government is not a partner for peace. I mean, this is very clear. That is, that is what he said the other day. Benjamin Netanyahu has said, these words before over the years. So it's certainly not a secret that this is where he stands. He's long opposed to two-state solution. I mean, he's but, said many things. He, yeah. he delivered a speech in, in favor of the two-state solution. He appears in the UN, the General Assembly, in support of the two-state solution. He supported the, the Trump plan four years ago, which speaks about a two-state solution. So he is changing his mind. At the beginning, he was against, then he changed, and now he's against. I, I presume that because he is very much dependent on the extreme right in Israel, and if uh, he says that he supports a two-state solution, he will not have a coalition of 64 out of 120 members. Is that part of what explains for you the timing of why he's saying this? He's, he's certainly a, a, an experienced politician. So what is the benefit of saying this right now at this moment in this conflict? He wants to continue to be a prime minister in order to continue his his this uh, function. He has he needs a coalition. It includes the extreme 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 right in Israel. There were, we never had such a a government before, and he is dependent on them. Uh, but if you see the the public opinion polls in the last year, even before the October the seventh, he, he is down and down and down. Now he. His party gets uh, less than a half of the of, of Gantz party, the centrist party. So he's quite desperate, apparently. In the translation we heard in that clip, Netanyahu describes Israel as controlling all territory west of the Jordan River. Some other interpretations of that, some other interpreters, have used the English expression from the river to the sea when translating his remarks. What does it signal to you, what you heard there, and that, that he would invoke that expression? It's nonsense. It's really nonsense. From the river to the sea, both extreme uh, sides are saying it. The Palestinians are saying from the river to the sea, and they demonstrate with this uh, slogan. Now, Israelis are saying it, which means zero-sum game. It's either you or me. And those who say that it is a zero-sum will bring upon us, God forbid, a disaster a disaster for both peoples. We spoke to um, the father of one of the hostages still being held uh, earlier this week, and he said he wants to see Netanyahu's government focus on more diplomatic efforts to bring these hostages home. Can statements like what we just heard actually help bring peace or help bring these hostages home? Why would he say that when those things are on the line? God knows. I think that because he is desperate, he understands that he is to be blamed for what happened uh, on his shift. He was the prime minister for for uh, decades. And uh, if something like that happened to us, I don't think that he has a chance to, to continue and be the prime minister. I want to play a little bit of what Canada's prime minister, Justin Trudeau, said uh, when asked about the recent comments from Benjamin Netanyahu. Canada's position is crystal clear. Uh, 
We believe the only way forward for the region, indeed the only way forward for a safe and secure Israel, is to have a Palestinian state that is also safe and secure with internationally recognized borders. Could there be real consequences for Netanyahu uh, and Israel in terms of the partnership with Western allies such as Canada uh, because, because of, of what, what he, he said? said? Mm-hmm. The main problem would be the United States. On October the 7th, uh, Biden decided to support Israel as, as maybe no, no other president before him, despite his uh, attitude towards Netanyahu. And now uh, I think that uh, it will be more difficult because of what he said yesterday. But it is also because he did not believe that the campaign uh, would uh, continue for such a long while and that uh, the the victims in Gaza will be so many. So he became a little bit cooler in his support. Is there something that the Biden administration or other Western allies of Israel could and should be doing, in your view, to actually yeah, bring yeah. peace? Uh, I, I think that you should uh, not give up on the two-state solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, since uh, this is the view of uh, President Biden, and he repeats it, he should uh, not give up on it just because Netanyahu, for whatever reason, decided to say what he said yesterday. As we've been speaking now, but also when we spoke in October... You told us most people there, most Israelis, are ready for exactly what you're talking about, a two-state solution. But does it matter that that most people are ready for it if none of those people are in control right now? Yes, it it is is very important because uh, you see what happened in Israel lately. I mean, after the protests against the legal revolution, there is nothing, nothing whatsoever of, of the laws uh, is left because of the demonstrations. And this democracy will demand the prime minister to resign. What is your message to Israelis, but also members of the Jewish diaspora, who agree with Benjamin Netanyahu and see no room for the kind of peace you you pursued that they actually maybe they they are doing it because they, they love Israel and adore it. But if we do not uh, partition the land, then a minority of Jews will dominate a majority of Palestinians. This is the, the recipe of, uh, of the end of democracy. And so it, it, either we will not be a Jewish state or we will not be a democratic one. Yossi Balin, I appreciate your time once again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yossi Balin is Israel's former Minister of Justice and was a negotiator during the Oslo Peace Accords. We reached him in Tel Aviv. They were anticipating a celebration, and they got one eventually, but they left feeling hung up on how long it took to arrive. It was considerably more than four minutes. In fact, all three of Madonna's New York City shows last month began more than two hours after their scheduled start times. And in the tradition of the megastar herself, two fans decided it's always best to express yourself. In this case, through a class action lawsuit filed against Madonna, concert promoter Live Nation and concert venue, the Barclays Center. Richard Klass is the lawyer representing concert goers, Michael Fellows and Jonathan Haddon. We reached him in New York City. Richard, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, know what it's like to be excited for a concert and then be, you know, kept waiting for a while by the artists that they're there to see. But what made your clients want to go beyond you know, complaining about it, writing to the fan site, and instead, you know, taking legal action. It became more than frustrating to them that they spent all this time and money and she didn't come out for more than two hours. So they decided to take legal action. You know, two hour, being two hours late for anything 
is not cool. I think we can all agree on that. It's rude, certainly, unprofessional, some might say. But does it really necessitate this kind of legal step? I think it does. So, so, you know, there's being there's being discourteous, um, but but it's it's more than that. People take the time out besides spending the money to buy a ticket. People take the time out to go to the concert and they want to see her. And people had to leave before she came on. Today, I got uh, an unbelievable call from a Canadian who went to the Detroit concert, came over the border, was is on oxygen, and the tank only had a certain amount of time, and had to leave the concert early because of the oxygen and because she had to travel back over the border. Mm-hmm. And so I'm only handling the... Barclay Center mm-hmm. uh, matters, but uh, you know every every state uh, has consumer protection laws. Uh, New York has uh, deceptive practices and also a false advertising statute. And we basically uh, protect consumers from uh, businesses that do uh, harm to consumers that take advantage of them. So we're suing under these statutes. Uh, for whatever misrepresentations there are, and to make sure to keep businesses honest in their dealings with the with consumers, to make sure that they stick to what they say that they're going to do, and what, that that's that's what we're suing for. What kind of damages are your clients seeking? So um, we're bringing this as a class action. At the moment, it could be refunds. It could be people who laid out money for parking garages, for instance, or extra transportation. Um, So the the answer is that uh, um, it's to be determined what the damages are, but it may be at a minimum refunds. Madonna has addressed this issue before because she's been late before, including uh, at her 2019 show at Caesars Palace. That was more than three years ago. Here's what she said then. Here's something that you all need to understand. And that is that a queen is never late. So she has a history of this, and other artists do as well. She has an answer, as you you heard there. And Madonna fans will know that that's who, who she is. So... You know, what do your clients and you say in response to that? I mean, they knew what so, they were getting with Madonna, no? So, not, first of all, not everybody knows that. That's number one. Number two is that she has not always been late to every show. She has been on time to shows. Also, what you brought up about other performers, I think that it's becoming, that the uh, the lack of courtesy may be coming of performers, not people, but performers is becoming maybe more prevalent recently than it used to be. And maybe the rudeness needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, this is the manner in which it has to be addressed. So is this case uh, about sending a broader message then? Or do you really think you can win um, this money for your clients? I, I, I First of all, I believe that it's a, a proper lawsuit, mm-hmm. a legitimate lawsuit, uh, and I think it does send uh, a clear message to Madonna in particular, um, and I think it does send a, a broader a message to the broader class of uh, performers that uh, fans of these performers do not want this conduct to be going on. So uh, I hope that it's received by performers and venues that uh, it shouldn't be tolerated. Do you think there needs to be some kind of regulation around arrival times? So, I, you know, I, I'm afraid of over-regulation. I was asked that, uh, you know, should we have automatic uh, refunds in some way? Uh, based on what time some uh, you know performers starts, and I'm uh, I'm afraid of going down that road because I I'm human and everybody's human, and I, I don't know the answer, mm-hmm. so I don't want to have a knee jerk reaction in that regard. But um, th- this may send a message. Thank you for this, Richard. You're welcome. Thank you so much.
Richard Class is a lawyer representing two concert goers seeking class action certification for a lawsuit against Madonna, Live Nation, and the Barclays Center. We reached him in New York City. Six days from today, Kenneth Smith is scheduled to be executed by the state of Alabama. In 1988, a jury found him guilty in the killing of Elizabeth Sennett, part of a murder-for-hire plot orchestrated by her husband. This will be his second time in the death chamber. He now faces death by breathing in nitrogen gas. This week, a UN High Commissioner for Human Rights issued a statement urging the state to call it off, saying the method could amount to torture and violate international treaties. Last week, a federal judge denied his lawyer's arguments for an injunction to block the execution. An appeal to that decision is underway now. Fordham Law professor Deborah Deno is an expert on American law and the death penalty. We reached her in New York City. Professor Deno, you have kept a close eye on executions in the United States for for decades now. As you look to this one, scheduled for next week, what stands out to you? What stands out is how unique... The Kenneth Smith execution is, in every sense of the word, unique. I, first of all, it's the first time this method of execution has will have ever been used in the history of the world, as far as we know. Number two, it's the first time an inmate's going to be executed or an attempt at an execution for the second time, and that has never happened under the Eighth Amendment Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. Number three, it's going to be the first time there will be two attempts executions using two entirely different methods. And, uh, and that introduces all sorts of risks and problems. This is difficult to, to, to talk about, but before we talk about what could happen next week, can you tell us what happened the last time Alabama attempted to execute Kenneth Smith? In November 2023, Alabama spent over four hours trying to execute Kenneth Smith by lethal injection. They couldn't get a line into him. And what I mean by that, they couldn't get the drugs that they use for a lethal injection inside his body. They kept on picking and probing him all over his body uh, to the point that he was you know, experiencing extreme psychological distress and still is. And uh, that's because they didn't know what they were doing. Next week, if the execution does go ahead, they plan to use nitrogen gas. There are many concerns about this method. As you mentioned, it's the first time. It's untested. Why is there so much concern about this method? There's so much concern for several reasons. First of all, the protocol is extremely vague. We don't really know what's going to happen uh, on January 25th at all. And, uh, and that's concerning because if they knew what they were going to do, they would provide the information about it. The fact that they haven't is, is frightening. Number two, we don't know how people react to nitrogen. They're using a procedure based on anecdotes of industrial accidents, etc., but nothing medically tested at all, certainly not on a human being. Number three, we do know that uh, of you know, cases of animals being exposed to nitrogen. But, you know, those cases suggest that that this could be a painful, extremely distressing kind of of death. And even with animals, say if you, uh, for a pig or something, you would sedate the pig. There's no mention of sedating uh, Mr. Smith. And the American Veterinary Medical Association will not allow the use of nitrogen gas to dispose of an animal, in other words, to put an animal down. In addition, uh, you know, there are going to be other people exposed to the nitrogen gas. A spiritual advisor is going to be sitting in the chamber with him along with a corrections officer. Uh, They have to sign waiver forms um, acknowledging that they are exposing themselves to danger. So we have an additional problem that's never been uh, an issue with any other method of execution, and that is this method is dangerous to witnesses.
Last week, a federal judge denied Smith's legal arguments to block this execution, saying there was, quote, simply not enough evidence to support his lawyer's arguments that this method of execution would cause him undue pain and suffering. Today, though, as we speak, there is an appeal of the execution uh, underway today, not his broader case. Could the U.N. statement sway things at all? It, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard to know how much courts are affected by what happens internationally. They think they like to pretend that they aren't affected at all, and some courts write that. Nonetheless, look, the judges read the newspapers. They are very aware of what the public is thinking and what the public is exposed to. Uh, this is all to say they're certainly not immune uh, to international arguments, particularly from the United Nations, but it's hard to know how much they would be swayed by that kind of source. Why is Alabama turning to this untested method that's so controversial? Alabama is turning to this method because they have sort of painted themselves into the corner. Alabama has a terrible record uh, of lethal injection executions. Kenneth Smith's execution failed. The execution or attempted execution of uh, Doyle Ham before him failed. They had uh, an incredibly brutal execution uh, before then. Uh, they have a terrible record. They had to turn to another uh, another method, and so they put this method before the legislature and the legislature adopted nitrogen hypoxia without really knowing any kind of details whatsoever. They want to keep executions moving and existing, and this is the only way they can do it. At the same time, uh, we're seeing that they're having problems justifying uh, this particular method because it, it obviously is associated with the, uh, some major flaws, and uh, and they really don't know very much about it. You've said that states have not learned, or we as a, as a people have not learned from the mistakes of the past in, in this area. Why do you think that is? Memories are short, particularly if you want to keep the death penalty going. Uh, you know, this is this pattern of botched executions, of relying on really a flawed foundation as they are in Alabama. I mean, they have no medical expertise for justifying the use of nitrogen hypoxia apart from uh, a 14-page typo-ridden paper that from uh, three people who had no medical background. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, everybody just looks at the execution at issue rather than, you know, patterns existing over the course of a century and a half uh, of this sort of thing happening. Professor, thank you. Thank you very much. Deborah Denno is a law professor at Fordham University. We reached her in New York City. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Manitoba's Seal River watershed is made up of 50,000 square kilometers of undeveloped land, and it appears it's largely going to stay that way. Yesterday, a coalition of four First Nations signed an agreement with the federal and provincial governments to study making the huge expanse of land an indigenous protected area. The initiative is years in the making and comes decades after the Canadian government forcibly removed Indigenous peoples from their homelands on the watershed. Stephanie Thorassi is executive director of the Seal River Watershed Alliance, which represents the four First Nations involved. She's also a member of the Saisi Dene First Nation from Taduli Lake, Manitoba. But today we reached her in Winnipeg. Stephanie, now that this deal is done, what do you see when you look out at the watershed? I see the land and the rivers and the water 
and I see like this imaginary halo over it as the caribou are running uh, beside me and I drive my snowmobile. I see the birds and the waterfowl like flying over me and I know that the work that we do will continue to protect them and gives us peace of mind as we move forward to do the studies that are necessary to realize the establishment of Canada's largest protected space. Mm-hmm. I can hear a smile in your voice just as you're speaking. Yeah, absolutely. I just like, it's surreal. Uh, Makes me uh, a little bit emotional when I think about it because it's taken us a lot to get here today. Yeah. I can hear from what you're saying a little bit about why this land is so significant. But just give a sense to our listeners of why it is so important to you, but these four First Nations overall as well. This is so important because uh, we know that when you have a disconnect with the land, you lose the spirit of the people that live there. And we know this from firsthand experience, you know, the, with the relocation of my community, uh, what happens to the people when they don't have a connection to the land that sustains them. A third of our population died from starvation, from uh, trauma, from fires a lot of negative bad things and we know that that's something that can never happen again we want to make sure we do everything we can in our power to prevent that from happening to make sure that we have healthy people we need to have connections to healthy land and we know that nature cannot be successful like biodiversity without the people that are from there and live there so uh, we, we want to make sure that we're doing everything and our power to continue to be uh, good partners with the land as well. So in addition to being about conservation, what does it say to you about reconciliation? This is reconciliation in action. This is a real reconciliation that we see firsthand happening right before us. You know, there's so much talk about this word, and it's almost like a buzzword now that's used that, Uh, We're not really sure what it means to us anymore sometimes, but for us in the communities, letting us stand up and say what is important to us and honoring and understanding that we need to do this for ourselves is really powerful for the people to take ownership of our own story and our own lives. And that then in turn leads to further healing that needs to happen in our communities. You mentioned a moment ago the work that still needs to be done. The agreement calls for this feasibility assessment of establishing a protected area. So what would it look like ultimately if it were to get that status? The protected area, that's a part of the studies that we're doing. Mm -hmm. We need to figure that out. We need to have all of our community members. We need all of our stakeholders. We need all of, like, our neighbors and everybody to weigh in on that, what this could and should look like. We have lots of community engagement that needs to happen with Parks Canada and and figuring out just what the community members are interested in. Do they want a mixed designation National Park Reserve? Do they want something that... Uh, utilizes the provincial park system, so they want something that is just an Indigenous protected area. You know, these are the questions that we have to ask as we move forward on top of all the Indigenous knowledge, on top of all of the the science stuff. we got to do a lot of homework now. we got to bring, <laughs> bring all of our papers and documents that we've been doing for the past, like, four years. we got a nice big stack here, so... That's something that we are being recognized for as we uh, communicate with our new partners and we're showing them these documents that we've had completed. And and we often are hearing people are surprised by how much work we've done in advance. Does that annoy you when people express that surprise? Well, you know what, it, it kind of puts us in this box and that they think that this this isn't the way Indigenous organizations typically work, and we're here to break out those molds, and we're here to really show them that we're we're serious about this, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure this is a reality for the future generations of our community. There's also been discussion, you know, Wabkanoo Premier has, has talked about a new type of development, potentially ecotourism. This is something you referred to as well. What would that new kind of development look like in your mind? 
land jobs for land people. We want to build jobs that match our cultures and match our, our traditions and match us as people growing up. My grandparents were land users, therefore they were on social assistance. But that means that they could take me out on the land whenever I wanted and needed, whereas my parents worked nine to five jobs. And they could not be land users. We're here to break that cycle, and we're here to say that you can make a living being a land user, practicing our cultures and our values and our traditions and our Indigenous laws that govern who we are as Indigenous people. So what we're doing is we're hoping to open up a little window of that to outsiders if they're interested and offer them a place to visit where they can experience some of that culture alongside us. You know, lots of those places that are out there right now, they don't have our grannies sitting at the table beating, telling our creation stories. They don't have our community members showing them how to make dried fish. And this is all missing in tourism today. And we know we don't want anyone else telling our stories. So we know that we're the only ones who can do justice to this job. A pleasure speaking with you, Stephanie. Thank you. You're welcome. Masicho. Stephanie Thorassi is executive director of the Seal River Watershed Alliance. She was in Winnipeg. And now, quote, unquote. Yo, what up, what up, Pacer Nation, man? It's your boy, Pascal. Um, just landed. I know you see the plane. Just touched down. Um, super excited. Can't wait to meet all you guys. Um, and I'm just super excited, man. Let's get it. Go Pacers. That's probably hard to hear for Toronto Raptors fans. Pascal Siakam joining his new team. Raptors president Masai Ujiri said it was a difficult decision to trade away Siakam, considering what he means to the franchise and the city. And despite the team's recent struggles on the court, leaving Toronto was never something Siakam wanted because Toronto is the place he calls home. That's what Mr. Siakam wrote in a farewell letter in the Players' Tribune today titled Toronto Forever. He wrote about the ups and downs over the past eight years with the Raptors, coming to a new city after losing his father and passing his driver's test on his first try, but also about why a kid from Cameroon put down roots in Toronto. This is what Mr. Siakam wrote in part. Quote, Toronto made me feel like I belonged from day one. I loved the diversity. I'd go out and see Cameroonians, Ghanaians, Mexicans, Koreans, Jamaicans, Europeans, all types of people from all types of communities. It made me feel comfortable. I remember during my rookie year, me and my brother, we'd go to all these amazing African restaurants and eat the food we loved from back home. Discovering all of that and getting to live in such a diverse place, let me take my guard down and be me. This isn't thanks for the memories that I go someplace else. Basketball can take me all over the world. But like I said, this is home. Unquote. to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. Sir Winston Churchill was famous for speeches like these. And now you can own a piece of what made them sound the way they did. A pair of Sir Winston Churchill's dentures will be up for auction next month by the Cotswold Auction Company and are expected to fetch five to 8,000 pounds. But even that might be a conservative guess, says co-director Lindsay Brauna, who's been cutting her teeth at the Cotswold Auction Company for some 40 years. We reached her in Busage, England. Lindsay, we, we just heard a clip from Winston Churchill there. How much of an influence did you think those dentures had in shaping the orator he was? Well, I think they were very important to him. 
he was always concerned that uh, his voice would remain the same and that he should have a sort of consistent sound. So um, speech and speeches were all important to him and to the nation during the war. Um, so you can see it, they were absolutely vital for him. And yeah. that's why he always carried a spare pair with him. Yes. And he had four in all. Is that right? Uh, definitely three, possibly four. And um, he was buried wearing one set. Uh, another set is in the Hunterian Museum in London. Um, so this set remains and possibly one other. Uh, he, in fact, he was so keen um, on the work that was done by his dentist, who was called Sir Wilfred Fish, uh, that he um, campaigned for a knighthood for him. And he was nominated for a knighthood. And did he get that knighthood? He did. Yes, okay. he did. Well, yeah. So they were important to him, as you said, important enough to uh, hand out a knighthood. Or not hand out, but recommend a knighthood, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think when these landed on your desk? Oh, we were really, we were really amazed, actually. We had an initial contact from someone who was handling the estate of this late collector, he had a great interest in World War Two and in Churchill particularly, so that it's quite a collection. Um, but we think this is really the most telling piece um, of ephemera connected with him. It's amazing. What do they look like? What are they made of? I mean, den- dentistry has come a long way over these decades, yeah. certainly. What do these yeah. look like? They look like teeth. They're kind of ivory-coloured, tooth-coloured. Complete um, set or partials? It's no, it's it's just six teeth, four together and then a gap and then two together. Mm. So they fitted. It's like a kind of bridge, really. It fitted mm. in with the teeth uh, that he still had. He did have quite severe problems with his teeth, and um, in his twenties he lost quite a few teeth. So uh, it was always a great concern to him uh, to he should have these these dentures. And what are they made of? I think they're probably porcelain and they're set in uh, a gold mount uh, and then they hook over his, his existing back teeth. This was the top, top level? It's a top set, yeah. yeah. Dentures, of course, are very useful, ubiquitous, no shame in them, but they're also not things that people really put on display and that other people want to see. Right. So no. it's, it's strange to, to think someone could pay thousands and thousands of pounds for these. I know. It is really strange. And when you look at them, you think, well, my goodness, he could have been wearing them when he made one of those really important, pivotal speeches. And just looking at them sitting there in their, their case, they sit in a little case, it kind of sends a tingle down your spine. It's amazing. How many years did he have them? How old are they total, do you think? We think they were made at the start of World War Two when Churchill was 65. Um, so they've lasted since. 1939 then. You mentioned a collector had them. You you received them from the estate of that collector. Mm. They were auctioned off before for more than 15,000 pounds. This time you're thinking five to 8,000. And just for our Canadian listeners, that's 13,500 Canadian dollars. So not a small sum, certainly, uh, for these dentures. Who do you think would want them now? Oh, there, there's a, a real body of collectors interested in World War II generally, and <clears throat> particularly another body of collectors interested in Churchill. They could be in the UK, they could be um, in the States or in Canada, they could be in Europe. Um, it, it's quite widespread, I think. Why are they so fascinated, do you think, with every, you know, it's one thing to, to be interested in the history, but to want to mm. own these these pieces big and small about that time well i think it's um it's a real physical connection isn't it it's you you just wouldn't expect to ever come across something like this i mean people do collect um for example the stubs of churchill's cigars there are a number of those around and they can be similarly really sought after because it's very very personal and it really goes to the heart of a person. And I suppose anything connected with yeah. the physical body um, of a famous uh, a legend like um, Winston Churchill 
has a real aura about it. How much do you think they'll go for in the end? Well, I don't know. We've tried to make... We don't want to overestimate. We don't want to put anyone off. We're trying to build up as much interest as possible. But it's quite probable that they could make... Um, over the uh, our upper estimate. You've auctioned off other interesting bits of memorabilia. Uh, how, how does this one fit in into that history? Is there one that's a favourite? Well, this is known about, and it was known what it was when it was consigned to us. What I particularly like is discovering something which is not believed to be of value, and that happens to us all the time. Um, one of my favourites was going to visit a house uh, in Cheltenham looking at all sorts of china and silver but there was a pile of rubbish going to the tip and I managed to fish out a, a carved wooden shield which turned out to be Australian 19th century oh, wow. um, Aboriginal and it, although it was um, split all the way along and very ancient and dusty and the family thought it was of no value at all it was hugely important to collectors again such a rare thing Lindsay I appreciate your time thank you Thank you for your interest. Lindsay Brana is the co-director of the Cotswold Auction Company. We reached her in Busage, England. If Ms. Brana wants to up the ante even more, she might want to get in touch with Steve Jenny and see if she can pair Sir Winston Churchill's dentures with another bit of obscure political paraphernalia Mr. Jenny holds dear. You might remember the Missouri man whose life changed on September 22, 1960, when Richard Nixon ate half a sandwich. At the time, Mr. Nixon was the U.S. vice president. He was in Sullivan, Illinois. And so was a young Mr. Jenny, who picked up that half-eaten sandwich, took it home, and put it in the freezer. On the sandwich's 60th birthday, former As It Happens host Carol Off spoke with Mr. Jenny about that auspicious day. Steve, as it turns uh, 60 years old, how is Richard Nixon's sandwich doing? Well, probably a lot better than I am because it it hasn't aged at all. It's uh, well-preserved and at home safely in my freezer. Wow. After 60 years in the freezer, must be a fair bit of freezer burn there. Well, it's inside a plastic bag and inside a a glass jar that's well sealed, and all of that is inside another plastic bag, stored away, tucked away in my freezer. And when I look at it through the glass, it doesn't look like it's shrunk or gotten moldy at all. And can you still tell that it's a sandwich? Well, yeah. You know, it's a bun with uh, a couple of bites uh, out of it. So, yeah, if if you know what you're looking at, and if I describe it to you, you can say, oh, yeah, that is a sandwich. <laughs> and a couple of bites were actually made by Richard Nixon himself. Right. I'm going to guess maybe three bites uh, by looking at the sandwich. It's more than one, maybe only two, but it looks like three bites. Right. Um, you were a Boy Scout at the time in Sullivan, Illinois. How did you come to be in the company of then Vice President Richard Nixon? Well, because back then there was not such a need for the security that we see today. Uh, of course, in 1960, it was three years before the Kennedy assassination, which changed everything, of course. So when they asked for security, our, our Boy Scout troop was available. And they said, let's just put the Boy Scouts around the picnic table. I just happened to be the lucky one right behind uh, Vice President Nixon. Everybody was jostling for a position, and I was trying to keep people back. Okay, so you're 14 years old, and uh, you got a serious job there. You're the security man. So um, uh, did did you actually see him get the sandwich? Yes, I did. Yeah, they had a, uh, a, a young girl uh, present him with the sandwich. What he was having that day was buffalo barbecue, like pulled pork, but it was buffalo meat. And uh, then she stepped back, and that's when he proceeded to take a couple bites. And after each bite, he made a, a nice comment. And I think that's probably why he didn't finish the sandwich, because there's only so many things you can come up with to say in front of thousands and thousands of people after you take a, a single bite out of a sandwich. So after three bites, he uh, set it back down on the paper plate and excused himself to go elsewhere to make his uh, political speech. And and that's uh, when uh, 
thousands of people followed him, and that sandwich stayed there on the picnic table on the paper plate, and nobody else thought about picking it up, so I decided that I would. I thought, well, uh, I'm going to take that. I left it, put it on the paper plate, hopped on my bicycle and sped home and told my mother about it. And she said, well, what do you want me to do with it? What do you want to do? I said, freeze it. So she did. She put it inside a plastic baggie and put that inside a Musselman's applesauce jar. And it's been there for 60 years now. From 2020, that was former host Carol Off speaking with Steve Jenny, the proud owner of a 64-year-old sandwich half-eaten by Richard Nixon. Those who like mushrooms, like them a lot. And we can now confirm most of California is part of that group. And among the Californian mushroom lovers, those with an affinity for the golden chanterelle variety are especially tickled this week because that particular variety is now California's official state mushroom. And they are quite striking. They have a rich gold color and are big enough to, quote, Feed a family of four with leftovers, according to the Bay Area Mycological Society. That last part piqued our interest, and it got us foraging in the As It Happens archives where we plucked out this beauty, an interview from 2005 with Kansas City resident Ty Whitmore, a hunter who had just captured what might be the trophy of his life. And that trophy was believed at the time to be the largest edible mushroom ever found. Here he is talking to former As It Happens host Mary Lou Finley from his farm outside Maysville, Missouri. Mr. Whitmore, where did you find the mushroom? Well, just about four miles east of Maysville here. You were out hunting? No, I was out uh, cutting wood for a, a friend for my mother-in-law. How big is it, the mushroom? Well, it's, it, when I first cut it down, it was 56 pounds. The Department of Conservation got it certified. It was, I believe, 30 inches wide and about 60 inches high. That's pretty big. What does it look like? Oh, it looks like a great big coral reef. It's coral? I mean, it looks like Colored? a coral reef, like something you'd find in the ocean. It ends up being, it's a salty polypore, uh, what they call it the chicken of the woods because of its good-eating qualities. Oh, so it's edible, too. Oh, yes. yes. Have you had a nibble? Oh, yes, I've had more than a nibble. <laughs> You'd be having mushroom omelets for some time, I guess. Oh, yeah, it's great with toast. It has the texture of salmon whenever you chew it. Wow. Um, and I took it down to my mother-in-law's work. They all thought the same thing. It's got the texture of salmon as you chew it, but it has the taste of chicken. Nice. Yes. Where do you store it? Well, right now, it has been just sitting on my counter. Uh, a 56-pound mushroom? Yeah. My <laughs> wife's like, get it out of the fridge. We don't got enough fridge space for it. I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh-huh. So where did you weigh it, and, and how did you get it up and all of that? I mean, well, I first weighed it at a grocery store here in Maysville, and then it basically tried to tip the scales there, so I took it down. And then from there on, I weighed it a couple other places. My mother-in-law's got some scales out here at her house I weighed it on. And then about 48 hours later, after I started seeing how much attention this mushroom was getting, and <laughs> come find out it was a new world record, I went to weigh it again, and I froze it that first night because I thought I could preserve it that way, and come to find out I couldn't. No. Uh, it, it lost a lot of moisture, and from uh. there it's been losing its weight. Oh, okay. How far did you have to carry it? Uh, it was at least, I, at least I will stress that, about a half mile. I was just walking in the woods looking for some down logs. I didn't drive back there. I didn't see no need, and need to if I didn't couldn't find any logs. So I was just down there walking through the creeks, and I came through an opening, and I was up on a higher part of the hill, and I was looking down, and there was an opening in the field between the two timbers, and then through that little timber draw, there was another timber, and then there was a creek down there. I thought somebody was down there deer hunting, and I was like, oh, they better not be down there deer hunting. <laughs> I seen that bright orange. I thought somebody was down there and hunting orange. Like somebody's got their season confused. All right. I got curious, walked down there, and I jumped the creek, and oh my God, I got down there. It was a great big old mushroom. And actually, the mushroom that I picked, there was one bigger than that attached to the top of this. And uh, 
I had managed to take the chainsaw down there and cut it off the tree. And when, when I did that, the beggar half fell in the water. And oh. I had thoughts of going in the water and getting him. But, you know, it was like 30 degrees that night. And I don't like cold water. And, right. And, you know, it's between, you know, 8 and 12 feet deep. And it's in over my head, and I'm not getting in there. So you just, this is the smaller piece. Yeah, this is a smaller piece. I managed to cut this off and walk it back to the truck. And I didn't really know what I had at first. I figured, well, you know, I've never seen this kind of mushroom before. Maybe this is small for the size. And so I got internet that night and did some research and come to find out it was a, called a sulfur polypore. Chicken, chicken in the woods, you said. The chicken of the woods. And uh, we came and find out, and out of the, I don't know, 250, 300 pictures I looked at, this by far surpassed anything I'd seen. Any explanation for why you get one that big in, in a place? They said most normally, uh, see, I found this growing on a maple tree. Yes. And they said generally this will not grow on maple trees. It will grow on something, a hardwood like an oak or a redwood. They said the only way a mushroom this size could have grown is whenever this tree first gave birth, it had a fungus deep in its heart. They were saying that maybe every year this mushroom grows. It takes probably up to two weeks for this mushroom to get this size, so I'll be anxious to go back there next year and not cut it off the tree this time and get some second hands down there and take some pictures. Because it'll grow back. Yeah, unlike a morel, if you pick a morel, the fungus is within the ground. The, the fungus that made this mushroom grow, from what I understand, yeah. of an expert, Dr. Kimbrough, he told me that the fungus has to be deep within the heart of the tree. So it'll definitely be back. Huh. And are you on the lookout for more in the area? Or you oh, think no, this was I, just I, a I've flu? I've walked the timber the majority of my life, and I figured if I haven't seen one like this before, ain't no sense I'm looking. <laughs> right. Yeah, if I stumble across something like this again, I'll be sure to know what to do this time. Don't be cutting it off the tree until I get some pictures of it. When are you going to finish eating this one? Oh, I don't know. There's still a lot of it left. There's still oh, at least 25 pounds of it left. 20 people that's tried it so far, 18 of it, 18 people really liked it. The other two people really didn't care for it. Hmm. 10 out of 18 preferred it over the morel mushrooms. You can roll it up, put some stuffing in it, and have it instead of turkey for Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's what I've been told also, yes. <laughs> I just chop it up. I'll chop it up into fine little pieces, little chunks, and yeah. and I put a, a stick of butter in a pan, and I'll throw it in there, throw some lemon, pe- lemon pepper on it, and, party, and me and my wife just love it. Well, that's good, as long as you've got enough recipes to keep going. I've been talking to some people, let's see if they want to maybe buy a pound of it and, you know, maybe sell for like 10 bucks a pound. I figured if people down this way pay fifteen twenty dollars a pound for morels, you know, maybe somebody uh, sure. wants some of this. Yeah. Especially a world record mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Does it come with a certificate? Uh, not yet, no. Uh, <laughs> conservation, still check into that. Okay. If you can get a picture, I'll send you a picture along with some of the mushrooms. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Okay. You have a great day. You too. Um, bye-bye. Bye-bye. From 2005, that was former As It Happens host Mary Lou Finley speaking with Ty Whitmore just after he'd discovered what was believed to be the biggest edible mushroom ever found. As you know, today is the 171st anniversary of the premiere of Giuseppe Verdi's classic opera Il Trovatore, or The Troubadour, a tale of witchcraft and revenge, which... Oh, nuts. I'm sorry about this. They're they're having a birthday party upstairs for one of the horses from Heartland. Hey, can you guys... Can you guys keep it down? Ugh. Well, maybe it's not a party. Maybe it's a bunch of mating fish. Oh, I guess it was a party. So you're probably wondering why I was wondering if it was fish. Well, that's because of the mysterious sound that has been plaguing South Tampa, Florida. Since 2021, locals there have been complaining about a strange low rumble, a bass-heavy percussive noise that people say they can feel as well as hear. The nearby Air Force Base says it's not responsible. The local charter boat service says it is not responsible. And it's not just somebody blasting techno out of their Tesla. One Florida scientist is pretty sure he knows what it is. The black drum. A fish. 
that can weigh as much as 51 kilos, which is around 100 pounds, a fish that makes this mating sound. Okay, now multiply that sound by thousands because right now it's mating season and thousands of black drum fish are getting busy, getting busy. Well, one South Tampa resident has just started a GoFundMe to pay for that scientist to place underwater microphones in the hopes of solving the mystery once and for all, even if it won't make the noise stop. Because if it is black drums mating, they do that every year. And there's no way to break that fish's cycle. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Koksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.